Get 0% interest for 48 months on any replacement project right now at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Our experts complete the installation with no hassle or mess, leaving only perfect results. Schedule your free consultation now at PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at The Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the WTMJ Talk and Text Line at 855-616-1620. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So very glad to have you with us. I'm not going to bury the lead. I will not make you wait. Jeff, you said in the lead into the show that you were going to say, okay, maybe there is one, one thing that we as a community, you know, owe a debt of gratitude towards the crazed psychopath, you know, Daryl Brooks, who is on trial out in Waukesha. What could that possibly be? Well, here, here is what it is. Daryl Brooks and the the absolute outrage that he had been released on a stupid low bail by an out-of-control Milwaukee County Court Commissioner with the blessing of the Milwaukee County District Attorney's Office. The one good thing that came out of that very, very dark cloud was the fact that it is now starting to focus attention on what has been going on for years in the Milwaukee County Courthouse with judges, court commissioners, and the DA's office when it comes to setting stupid low bails and releasing dangerous people to commit crimes. And now, finally, 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 we're starting to focus on that, and I think at least some of the judges— And some of the district attorneys are starting to feel the pressure, recognizing that what we've been doing behind closed doors, it hasn't gotten any scrutiny, but yet has endangered public safety by releasing people who shouldn't be released on stupid low cash bails, that at least it, it has to stop. And now what you are starting to see is that some of the district attorneys, some of the assistant district attorneys, are taking the unprecedented, at least in my opinion, step of now starting to go public and call out some of the judges and the court commissioners for their irresponsible behavior. Now, let me back up for a second. What is a court commissioner? Well, in in Milwaukee County, they have... I just I'm not sure how many we have circuit court judges who are elected by the public. And I I forget how many there are now. It's more than 46 at least. And circuit court judges are employees of the state. They're elected by people in the county and they make somewhere in the neighborhood of like 150 grand a year. All right. Below circuit court judges, there are what are called court commissioners. Court commissioners are not elected by the public. And so as a general rule, they are not responsible to the public. Court commissioners, it's the ultimate kind of patronage job. Court commissioners, and there are 22 court commissioners in Milwaukee County. They are hired ultimately by the chief judge, who is somebody named Mary Trigiano. She ultimately has hired them. They have this process where, you know, people apply and um, they're, they're screened by like two judges or something like that. But ultimately, it's the chief judge that hires these court commissioners. Now, I hope you're sitting down for this. Court commissioners who are not elected by the public, hired exclusively by, again, with the, by the judges themselves, but particularly by the chief judge. And like I say, this is the ultimate patronage job. There, there's no other than having a law degree. There, there's really no qualifications for this job. It pays somewhere between 
$90,000 and $135,000 a year. The average court commissioner makes somewhere around $104,000 a year for this unelected position. So what do court commissioners do? Court commissioners are kind of, I would describe them sort of as junior judges. All their authority comes through the, the judges. But court commissioners will handle things like, Oh, maybe they'll conduct preliminary hearings and make recommendations to the judge. Maybe they'll uh, handle like routine stuff. Sometimes they'll they'll be the ones that they have the authority to, you know, issue search warrants and things like that. And court commissioners are also responsible for setting bail. It was actually a court commissioner who set the stupid low bail that let Daryl Brooks run free. And after that was all exposed, the chief judge, at least I don't know what the status is now, but the court commissioner who did that, he was kind of like pulled away and, and not allowed to set bail, at least at least temporarily. I don't know if he's back doing that now. But the, these court commissioners have tremendous, tremendous authority, which brings me to the story of a court commissioner who has quite honestly found a lot of attention, and it's not the kind of attention that you want. The Milwaukee County, again, these court commissioners are the ones that end up setting the bail on different things. So what happened is they have a—there's an arrest that's made. This is the way Fox 6 reported. A homicide suspect was released on a $2,000 bail Monday, October 17th. The suspect was back in court Tuesday when a judge ruled that the original $2,000 bail was completely inappropriate. Lamar Connor, 17, is charged with second-degree reckless homicide. He's accused of shooting and killing a 24-year-old man near 25th and Maple on October 12th. Um, so this, this is it. And there, he apparently acknowledged that he shot him. There might be some issue with self-defense. Okay, on Saturday, he made his initial court appearance in after being charged. Prosecutors asked for $20,000 in cash bail because he, he's charged with killing someone. All right, $20,000 because he's charged with killing someone. I don't think that's too unusual. The court commissioner is a guy named Joe Riebenhoff, who has been a court commissioner for, I, I think, less than a year. He, he's been an attorney for only about eight years. So he appears in front of this court commissioner, and the court commissioner decides that he is going to release this guy who is set on, again, accused of, of killing someone. He's going to release him on $2,000 cash bail for murder. And the man immediately posts it and is out. Well, all right, the, the district attorney's office said, wait, this is just absolutely crazy. They filed an objection to this stupid low bail, and they got in front of a circuit judge to whom the court commissioners report to. The assistant district attorney, Thomas Potter, told the judge, this is David Borowski, that he normally rearranges his schedule to make sure he's in town when this particular court commissioner, Joe Riebenhoff, is presiding over intake courts on weekends. Potter says there have been issues before. The last time this commissioner sat in intake court on a Saturday, there were four bails where we almost had to call the duty judge, and none of those four were homicides. What he is saying is whenever this, this Riebenhoff character sits on the bench 
and sets bails, they know that there are going to be problems because of the ridiculously low bails. Um, He goes on to say, um, look, this time we didn't know that Riebenhoff was going to be, you know, sitting, setting bails over the weekend because the the guy says, the district attorney says, well, normally I want to be there because I want to make sure that we can get an immediate review because we know he's going to set stupid low bails. But this time they didn't realize that the court commissioners have said um, switched off. He says, by the time I got back, it was too late. The bail had been posted. I filed this motion this morning knowing full well that the court would be in a difficult situation. Now we've got this young man who's here on bail, but the bail is unbelievable. And then the district attorney goes on and says, look, the bail is unbelievable. I've been doing this type of case for three decades in this office, even in the 80s. This type of bail for this type of homicide was unheard of. You can't take a human life and expect to get out on $2,000 cash. Uh, the judge, David Borowski, agreed, said, look, something just doesn't sound right about how this case was handled. He says, I'm shocked and dismayed at what occurred. I'm setting bail at $15,000. And, and he's he's upped, you know, he, he ups it. Now the guy's back in jail and he's still going to have a chance to get out, but they're going to have to post 15000 But what happened here that is so unusual is finally, 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 you have the district attorney's office which has created a lot of its own problems by, again, going along with stupid bail itself, pursuant to where the district attorney is. But now they are finally saying, look, enough is enough. We have these court commissioners, and I am paraphrasing here, who are out of control, who are setting these ridiculously low bails, and and we've got to start calling them out. And then, you know, so now they're they're focusing on this. If you look at some of the other bails, for example, that this court commissioner, who is an unelected official, says, who's making probably north of $100,000, um, these are just a couple of the cases that he handled over the weekend. Uh, Jadel Diaz Rodriguez, charged with second-degree recklessly endangering safety and fleeing an officer. The state requested $5,000 cash bail. Riebenhoff set cash bail at 500 Dollars. Um, Roy Allen, charged with intimidating a victim, domestic abuse, crime, battery, criminal damage to property, disorderly conduct. The state asked for $15,000 cash bail. Riebenhoff set bail at $500. Uh, Theasa Jones is charged with resisting, obstructing an officer. The state requested a $3,500 cash bail. Riebenhoff set bail at $800. And, and by the way, let me just add. What's going on here, this is not a district attorney's office under John Chisholm, which is known for requesting particularly high bails. So when they're asking for a bail, you can a lot of times you can figure that it probably should be a lot more than that. But in front of this one court commissioner who is apparently decided he's just going to turn loose dangerous people with such frequency that the DA's office now has to watch when he's going to be handling intake because they know there's going to be problems. Jose Cortez was charged with possession of cocaine, fourth offense operating with uh, drunk driving, operating while revoked. The state asked for $500 cash bail, which is practically nothing. Riebenhoff set a $1,000 signature bond. And again, a signature bond means you don't have to post the dime of your own money. But at least in this case, if you're trying to find, I mean, a silver lining, 
First of all, the district attorney's office appealed this, and the circuit judge said, yeah, this is way too low. We're not letting him out on a $2,000 bail. He killed somebody, and they upped it to fifteen grand. So that's number one. But number two, it has gotten so bad in Milwaukee County among these court commissioners and some of the judges in setting these bails that now even the district attorney's office is finally starting to go public and call out some of the absolutely ridiculous and outrageous um, pro-criminal decisions that are being made. And in this case, it's by the court commissioners who aren't even elected. They are hired with the blessing of the chief judge. So, again, what do we have to thank Daryl Brooks for? Well, if it wasn't for the Daryl Brooks case— This would continue to be going on on a regular basis. Court commissioners would be continuing to release people on stupid low bails. The media wouldn't be covering it. The district attorney's office wouldn't have the guts to call out people on these stupid low bails. Now at least that is starting to change. Now that's only one step. That The next step happens to be that you have to, I think, go to the chief judge and start to say, okay, who are we hiring to be court commissioners? And, you know, maybe— Maybe we should look beyond people that did nothing but work for legal aid or for the public defender's office, and maybe we should start trying to find people who care a little bit about balancing out the rights of a defendant with the general safety of the public. But until until we start hearing about these different court commissioners or the judges that are doing this, you can't have meaningful change. So to that extent, all right, we, we now know that the district attorney's office has at least one of these court commissioners on their radar screen because whenever he sets bail, they understand that there's going to be nothing but problems. Hey, Wisconsin, can you feel it? It's getting colder outside, which means it's the last week for the Jeff Wagner Home Improvement Showcase presented by Great Midwest Bank. This week, we're featuring Kohler Services. They offer a great product. You can visit their website at KohlerServicesWI.com to find out more. It's the Jeff Wagner Home Improvement Showcase on Wisconsin's radio station, 620 WTMJ. All right, let me update a story that I talked about the, the, the other day, and it's, it's the classic example of what happens when you fail upward. Tony Evers, and he's trying to run away from this now, but Tony Evers was very, very proudly boasting when he was running for office that his goal was to re- reduce the prison population in Wisconsin by half. As I've said before, there's only two ways you can do that. One is to appoint judges who send fewer people to prison. All right, how's that working out, Tony? The other is to release people early from prison. How's that working out, Tony? And, of course, the the issue of the the Evers parole board and the type of people that they have been releasing, and it's not somebody that's doing some time for marijuana. These are people who have committed incredibly, incredibly horrible offenses, and the Evers parole board has been releasing them as fast as they possibly can. It has been a disaster, and it's going to be one of the factors that I think is going to cost Tony Evers re-election. All right, so that's an issue here. Well, the guy who was responsible for running the Evers poll, uh, Parole Commission was a guy named John Tate, right? He, he was hired, and and he, if anybody should be upset with Evers, it should perhaps be him, because he was the guy that was tasked with doing what Evers wanted to do, right? Let's take all these people, let's get them out of prison, so let's take all these folks that have committed all these horrible crimes, and let's turn them loose. And that's what, that's what Tate was, was doing. 
And then, because this is an election year, and he was doing it with the blessing of Tony Evers, but because it's an election year, you had one high-profile case that hit the news um, you know, uh, several months ago where the, the victim's family hadn't been notified, and it was a guy who murdered his wife in front of the kids, and it was just—it was a horrible thing, and it, I don't know that it's any more horrible than a lot of the other people that the Evers Parole Commission has been has released, but it, it got attention— Evers recognized it was a political liability, so what he did is he went to Tate and he essentially said, look, I, I want this to go away. Let, let's, let's, let's put this guy back behind bars. And then ultimately, looking for a fall guy, Evers ended up firing John Tate from, from the position. Now, my point has been all along that whether it's Tate or someone else, if Evers gets reelected, somebody like Tate is going to be back running the parole commission because this is what Evers is all about. It's only because of what's happened during the political season that Evers has decided to start to, okay, well, maybe we need to look at this again. So anyhow, you have John Tate, who really was the fall guy for doing exactly what I think Tony Evers wanted and taking dangerous people and turning them loose um, at various points in time. So in the ultimate irony, John Tate applies for the job as Madison's independent police monitor. The city of Madison has decided that what we need to do is, because many of us view the police as an enemy, what we need to do is we hire an independent monitor to review what the police department does. And even though this isn't directly a spot with the fire and police commissioner, this monitor would be able to uh, look at and recommend discipline for police officers and investigate police activity, etc. Who do they hire for this job? Well, they hire John Tate. And I think this salary was like 120 grand or, or something like that. They hire him to be the Madison police independent monitor. So just imagine this, a guy who essentially got canned because he was releasing too many dangerous people or people that shouldn't have been out. You're going to hire him now to be a monitor of the police. Well, that's prompted a bunch of of outrage. Well, the dazzling detail is that Tate has now pulled back and decided, now I don't know what went on behind the scenes. I don't know if he decided that he was going to pull out of this or whether there was somebody who said, look, this, we, we just can't have this happen. But the new announcement is John Tate is not going to be taking that position. The The word I heard was that they, they he's got a position with Racine government or something that they're going to uh, allow him to slide into. Don't know what that might be. But anyhow, the guy who failed as the parole, as the head of Tony Evers' parole board, who ended up getting canned because of that, who was then going to be the Madison Independent Monitor of the Police, he's not going to be taking that job. That job continues to be vacant, and the revolving door just kind of continues. Mark my words, though, if Tony Evers is reelected, whether it's John Tate or somebody like him, they'll be the ones back running the parole board. We're going to see more and more stories exactly like we've seen in the political ads over the course of the last couple months. All right, this is another one of those my head is getting ready to explode moment. Uh, Merrill Park Housing Complex is it's part of the the city of Milwaukee's housing authority which is designed to arrange for housing for low-income families, seniors, disabled adults. The the Merrill Park housing complex, Merrill Park is well, it's a few blocks south if you can picture Market University High School 
and off of Wisconsin Avenue. That this Merrill Park is is a few blocks south of that, so it's kind of by the the neighborhood they call you know Pigsville that's out there. But it's it, so that that's where we're talking about now. The Merrill Park Housing Complex is it's a nine story apartment complex. It's been there since 1967. It offers 120 one-bedroom apartments, and it's designed for um, senior citizens 62 years of age or older. Um, it also is designed for near-elderly, 51 to 60, 50 to 61, and or, or disabled. So that's, that, that's, that's the criteria to, to get in there, all right? 120 apartments there. Here's the story as, as reported on Fox 6. And I, matter of fact, I tweeted out a link to this because you almost have to see the pictures to, to understand how aggravating this is. And you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner 620. Here's, here's the way Fox 6 reports it. And, and by the way, it starts off with a picture of a car that is up on blocks. The four wheels are gone and the car is sitting on four like little cement blocks. Residents of Milwaukee's Merrill Park Housing Complex, again, this is the city's kind of like, this is for elderly people. Residents of Milwaukee's Merrill Park Housing Complex are fed up Tuesday, October 18th, so that would be yesterday, after criminals once again targeted their parking lot overnight. It was shocking. This is the kind of stuff you see in the movies, resident Zachary Johnson said. It marked the fourth time since August his car has been hit. He said enough is enough, and he can't believe it happened again. So August, September, October. So over the course of two months or so, this his, his car has been vandalized four separate times. It marked the fourth time since August his car had been hit. He said enough is enough. He can't believe it happened again. Somebody knocked on my door 6 o'clock Tuesday morning and said, your tires are gone. Your tires are gone. When Johnson stepped outside to see the damage, it was worse than he imagined. All four tires had been stolen off of his Toyota Corolla. And and they got a picture of it. The car is up on blocks. They left the lugs on the ground, said Johnson. Apparently, they came in like a race car team. You know, you, you pull into the pits and you've got the crew and they're trying to get the they're, they're trying to get the tires off. That's apparently what happened here. They, they come in and they just steal all four tires. It is not the first time Johnson's car or the Merrill Park lot has been hit. In August, Fox 6 News talked to residents whose cars had been repeatedly broken into. One victim says, I, I have my insurance rates. They keep going up. As seasons have changed, nothing else did. Residents <clears throat> met with city officials to discuss the issue earlier in October. Know what happened the day after they met with city officials to discuss this? They had more break-ins the day after. Residents like Johnson wants to see a gate put up and have started a GoFundMe online fundraiser to pay for it. This is a problem that cries out for a solution, he said. We can either continue to be victims and remain helpless, or we can respond. Uh, The damage of the past few months sits in the lot like a painful reminder as residents try to stay optimistic that the latest incident will prompt change. Guy says this doesn't have to be. It's totally unnecessary. Police say they are investigating. Fox 6 also reached out to the city housing authority but did not hear back. The last time they responded, they said security patrols 
security patrols the parking lot, and there are working surveillance cameras on the property. Well, obviously, if they've got security that is patrolling the parking lot, they're doing a really crummy job. And if they're working surveillance cameras on the property, they're doing a crummy job as well because they're not catching people. But the, the bottom line, I mean, I can only imagine if this if this was you and, and you walked out into, you know, your parking garage or your parking lot or you park the car on the street in front of your house or wherever and you come out and your car is on blocks, literally, and all four tires are stolen, and this is the fourth time that your car has been vandalized in two months, I, I can understand why you would be thinking that, well, well, maybe th- the city has some, some issues here with this particular location. And this is, of course, 120 units. Now, don't get me wrong here. I, I guess, do, do I think they should build a, a gate? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that would, would be probably a good idea. If I lived in that particular complex and paid money and rent to the city of Milwaukee, would I be outraged that there's not more security? Yes, I would. But but let's not lose sight of what the underlying problem here is, is that you have vandals, thieves, punks, thugs, fill in the blank, who feel comfortable going back to the same place over and over again and victimizing, in this case, people who are, are probably some of the most vulnerable victims around by you know vandalizing their cars, stealing their tires. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the WTMJ talk and text line. Look, you, you get... You get the type of government, police protection, prosecutors, court system that that you deserve. I understand why these people are outraged. You should not have to live in a situation where, you know, four times in two months, your your parking lot is vandalized and the people are so brazen that they pull up and they just (laughs) take all four tires off of your car. It's like a bad movie. So, yeah, I don't have any problem with putting up a gate there. But my question is... Why don't we just make a point of trying to arrest the people who are doing this? How can we continue to allow people who live in some of these you know, neighborhoods where they've got some financial, you know, they're less well-off or you're, you're in your, the city's housing thing, don't they have the right to expect the same police protection, say, that you would get if you lived in, I don't know, Waukesha County or you lived in Washington County or you lived in other counties? And isn't it— is it unreasonable to say, all right, we're going to target these thugs that are doing this, and we are not going to make decent law-abiding citizens have to put up with this anymore? And if you want to see the poster child for it, I mean, just look at the, the guy's car is up on blocks. They felt comfortable enough to swing into this parking lot and steal all four tires and leave the car up on blocks. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, once and for all— isn't it time to just say we are doing a crummy job when it catch when it comes to catching criminals? We are over that. We are going to flood the city with police officers. We are going to arrest the people that are doing this. We are going to pressure the district attorney's office to prosecute the people that do this. We are going to pressure the judges to send them to jail. Enough is enough. This is not wild in the streets. It is not escape from New York. And we're not going to continue to allow these people that live at places like this to be victimized. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. That's the WTMJ talk and text line. I mean, seriously, you, this is, okay, it's, it's a, this case, it's, it's a senior housing complex um, on downtown Milwaukee, like 33rd and just a little bit off of Wisconsin. 
in the last four months that the parking lot has been hit four <clears throat> times by vandals, four times by vandals, including after they meet with city officials, it's the next day. And uh, the people that run the housing authority say, well, you know, we, we've, we know we, we've got security and we've got surveillance cameras. If they've got security, it, it must be like they've hired Barney Fife and Otis to come do that because the security is obviously not working. If they've got surveillance cameras, one of our texters say it must be the same type of surveillance cameras that they've got that they had on the Kilbourne Bridge that missed the fact that there was a man walking across it when the thing went up. But but my bigger point is, you know, obviously the housing authority is failing, but that, that's not the fundamental question. The fundamental question is you live in a community where the vandals, the thugs, whatever, feel so, so entitled, fear no consequences at all, that, that they're coming back and they're vandalizing cars in this parking lot over and over and over again to the point of, I, I mean, it's just... It's one thing, I guess, if you run through a parking lot. That's what really caught me about this story. It's one thing if you run through the parking lot and you've got a crowbar and you bang in a window out a window. We've seen that before. And then you try to rifle through the car to see if there's money. This they, they it, it is. It's like the Indy 500 pit crew. They pulled up, jacked up this guy's Toyota, took all four wheels off it, and left it essentially on on blocks. Um, one of our callers off the air said this happened to her daughter, and the police response was to give her wheel locks. Okay, why don't we get the bad guys off the you know street? Um, you know, Jeff, I don't think we're going to see any change with government or law enforcement and the respect that they deserve until the law changes. I feel you should protect your property by all means, and um, yeah, I, well, I think you know that's that's part of the issue that's here. Jeff, a message from outstate. This is one of our listeners in Fort Atkinson. I agree. You get the services from your government that you deserve. Milwaukee, the city of, and Milwaukee County keeps voting for this nonsense, and tragically, you keep getting it. Um, Jeff, this is a prime example of what you were talking about earlier. Low bail. It allows these thugs to return. Well, I mean, we don't know, but my guess is that the people that are brazen enough to pull into this, you know, senior living apartment complex four times in two months and vandalize it in this fashion, my guess is they have been through the criminal justice system on multiple occasions. And my guess is that they're on some form of probation or parole or bail. That wouldn't surprise me at all. <clears throat> but we, we know that they're they're just not afraid of any sort of consequences. Jeff, I work for the housing authority. The place is a joke. They are disorganized and they fail the residents that live there. Yeah, I think that there's there's clearly an element of that. And clearly, the housing complex is failing the residents. But but it's a bigger issue to me than should you put a gate in. First of all, I, I just I think it's appalling that the, the it's the residents who are trying to do a GoFundMe campaign to put a gate in. You would think that this would be the responsibility of the city of Milwaukee to to have adequate security at their rental properties, right? I mean, you would think that that would be the case. But again, that's that's not the bigger point. The bigger point is that you need to get the criminals off the streets. This is kind of like the argument about, well, you know, we've got thousands and thousands and thousands of cars stolen, and a good portion of them are Kias and Hyundais, so let's go after the manufacturer. Oh, okay, that that's... Yeah, let, let's let's put a better gate up there. Let's get some better security cameras. Okay, that's fine, but that's just putting a Band-Aid on a gaping wound. What you need to do, let's face it, is you need to catch the punks that are out there that feel 
bold enough to pull into a parking lot and steal all four tires off somebody's car and vandalize all these other cars and impact people in that way. You, you need to catch them because if you put a, a higher security or you put a better gate or whatever it is around the parking lot at this housing complex, all these punks are going to do is they're going to move down. They're going to find the next victim. They're going to move down to the next parking lot or housing complex or whatever. All you will do is move the problem, which I guess on the one hand, I, I respect the fact that the people who live in Merrill Park, they that, that would be good. At least they're not going to be getting victimized anymore. But it doesn't solve the overarching problem, which is you have a criminal element that is running, like we say, wild in the streets, and, and they need to be brought in. <laughs> Capital letters text. Jeff, they've got to do more to these thugs. I mean, yeah, they, they absolutely they absolutely do. I appreciate what these folks are going through. You know, we talk about living conditions and we talk about, you know, we want to have affordable housing and stuff like that. Well, well, that's fine. Along with that comes the the duty, I, I think, to, you know, have the police there to protect people and to catch people. And the thing that I, I keep coming back to is it, there are, are some communities, probably most communities in our listening area, where this would not be tolerated. It It, it just wouldn't. You don't hear about stuff like this happening on a regular and repeated basis throughout most of our listening area, but it's happening in Milwaukee. People are being victimized. It is an outrage, and I don't know what the answer is. Maybe it's, you know, maybe for the next month it's having, you know, an undercover police officer, you know, sitting in the back of one of these cars or something. So when they come back and do this, you know, there's somebody there to, to try to catch them. I, I don't know what the answer is. I, I leave that to the law enforcement people. But I know that this shouldn't be allowed to continue. It shouldn't go on night after night, week after week. People should not be victims in their own homes. And in this case, since it's the city of Milwaukee property, they should, the city of Milwaukee, I think, needs at the very least to be a lot more aggressive in dealing with this. But it's more than just building a gate. It's catching the bad guys, putting them in jail, putting them in prison, and keeping them there for a long period of time. Is that too much to ask? One of the interesting stories of the year has been the complete and total failure internationally uh, of Russia to take over Ukraine. Remember when when they first invaded, the thinking was, hey, this is going to be a walkover. It's going to be two or three days, and essentially Russia will be able to occupy Ukraine. Well, it hasn't worked out that way. The the invasion has turned into a a, a very, very costly, but it appears like failure. The the devastation that's been done to that country is just unthinkable. You, You have the huge civilian casualties. You have you know, what, uh, like a million people who've now become refugees. But at the same time, you know, Moscow and Vladimir Putin have not obtained their objectives. So they're becoming more and more desperate. One of the interesting stories is that, of course, Putin, recognizing that he wasn't succeeding, has started reinstituting effectively a draft. He said, OK, we we need we need 100,000 people or 300,000 men or whatever. We, we need them and we need them to send to the front. Well, OK, There's a lot of people in Russia, a lot of Russian males who that's not where they want to spend their winter getting shot at in Ukraine in a war that they want no part of. Interesting story in The New York Times today. Where have all the men in Moscow gone? 
Then they say across the Capitol, there are noticeably fewer men at restaurants, stores, and social gatherings. Many have been called up to fight in Ukraine. Others have fled to avoid being drafted. So that's one of the effects of the Vladimir Putin war in Ukraine. You've got men that are bailing out of Russia as fast as they possibly can. When is somebody going to end this war? And when is somebody going to do whatever it takes to bring Vladimir Putin to his senses? When we come back, get ready for the big chill. I will explain. We will discuss. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Just one final thought about what we talked about before, a text that caught my attention. Jeff, my grandmother had three cars stolen on the north side. Milwaukee police told her to get the club. They're too busy to watch elderly parking lots for cars being vandaled. Um, This happened 20 years ago. It's the same problem. There's no answer. And I guess I just refuse to accept that. Yes, there, there, there is an answer. And the answer is you need a lot more cops. You need to fly, and maybe it's a temporary solution, but right now crime is just so out of control. You need to flood the streets with police officers. When you catch people who are you know, going back to the scene of the crime over and over again and vandalizing cars and things like that, you need to arrest them. You need to prosecute them, and you need to hold them accountable. And if anybody in the system, whether it's the judges or the crazy court commissioners or the DA's office, if, if they're not willing to get on board, then you need to get rid of them because people deserve to not have to worry that if you park your car in the out the parking lot outside of the city housing complex, it's going to be vandalized four times in two months. You, you have the right to expect more than that, and we shouldn't put up with this, period. All right, let me switch gears. Story in the Wall Street Journal, and it's going to I'm going to track it into something that's going on locally. The headline is, Get Ready for the Big Chill. The price of heating fuel is going to soar this winter. All right, so what's happening is they estimate that the average U.S. household spending will increase for all heating fuels this winter, including natural gas. They think the cost is going to go up 28%. Heating oil, 27%. Electricity, they think, is going to go up 10%. And propane is going to go up 5%. Blame higher oil and natural gas prices from demand outstripping supply. Coal plant shutdowns in particular have increased demand for natural gas to generate power. Now, here's here's the, the hook, though. Natural gas prices are going to go up more than electricity is going to go up, but Households with gas power furnaces will still spend about 31% less than those with electric furnaces or heat pumps. That's because natural gas is still a lot cheaper than electricity. And unfortunately, in many states, um, and if you talk to Joe Biden, what they want to do is they want to force people into using electricity to heat their homes because they want us to get us away from like natural gas and things of the like. Well, electricity is just so much more expensive, plus that has to be generated from somewhere. So you've got this vicious cycle where costs are going to go up, which brings me to the local story. We Energies, because you know the, their costs are going up, they, they want to increase rates. And the story is starting next year, starting in 2023, We Energies is seeking approval from state regulators to increase their electric rates 
between 5 and 6%, um, or about $60 to $72 for the typical residential customer starting in 2023. The average We Energy's residential customer currently pays about $109 per month, up 14% from 2011. Okay, so you, you've got that. Um, the increase will affect We Energy's customers and WPS customers. The last time We Energy's asked for a rate increase was 2019. So their costs are going up, and they're saying, "Okay, we want to. We, we've got to just pass this on to the to the consumers." All right. Well, here is the story. There's this group, and the local newspaper reports on this. There's this group called Walnut Way Conservation Corporation, which represents the Lindsay Park neighborhood. And they have decided to intervene in this rate case, objecting to We Energy's asking for an increased um, rate. So um, what they're saying is, look, we 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 think that we need to get involved and we need to um, stop the, these rate increases. Okay, that that's fine. So they're they're looking out. But here's where it gets really interesting: the proposal from this group. Is, is simple. They say electric rates, the amount of money you pay for electricity, should be based on ability to pay. So you should be charged, you know, based on what your income is, with a guarantee that no household will pay more than 6% of its income for gas and electric service. So no household should pay more than 6% of its income for gas and electric service. So if you are, I don't know, if, if you're a, a homeowner and let's say your, your income is $100,000, okay, the, the most that you could pay for gas and electric would be 6%. So in my simple example, 6000 bucks. You know, you, you, you couldn't be charged more than that. If your income was 50000 it would be 6%, which would be, you know, less than that. If you make a quarter million dollars a year, that's 6%. You could be charged up to, you know, 6% of a quarter million dollars. That would be idea. It's not in the idea, uh, in the way this proposal, it's not tied to usage. So, for example, if you... I don't know, you, let's say you make $50,000 and you decide that you want to jack your heat up to 80 degrees in the winter because, you know, you, you want to be nice and warm and toasty, that, that doesn't matter because once you hit that 6%, you, you don't have to pay anymore. <laughs> you, just, it, you, you can do whatever you want. There's no incentive for you to economize because, again, once you hit that 6%, you're, you're all covered. Now, who is going to then pay for the people who use more than their 6%. Well, of course, it's going to be everybody else. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's a WTMJ talk and text line. I, once I saw this proposal, I said, wait a minute, you're, you're going to, they seriously want to cap the amount that you can spend on utilities, not based on your usage, but rather based on, on your income? That, that can't be right. And some people I know who are close to this are saying not only can it be right, it's exactly what the proposal is, and 
you know, you've got a couple of like the Tony Evers types on the Public Service Commission who might very well say, yeah, we, we think that it's just unfair to make people pay electric and gas rates based on how much they use. We think we should tie it to how much they make. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the WTMJ talk and text line. All right, let's talk about it. What do you think about that idea? We discuss in just a moment. 855-616-1620. That's the WTMJ talk and text line. Okay, so so we energy says we we need a rate increase. We want to we want to raise the cost of electricity because our costs have gone up. One of the groups that's intervening is this group out of Milwaukee saying, "Look, we need to completely relook at the way we look at utility costs and we believe that the government should order we energies and prohibit we energies from raising rates." More than say, well, and actually, this just change the whole basis that we pay. And that if, under no circumstances, should you be required to pay more than six percent of your income on gas and electric, doesn't matter how much you use. You just that should be capped. And the idea is, well, we want to help those least fortunate. Well, what that means is everybody else is going to have to pay more to cover that. Let's start. With Larry in West Bend. Larry, you're first. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. I want to just comment on this. I, I think this is an absolutely terrible idea. Um, you do nothing to want to make people try to conserve energy on the lower end. I mean, if they know that they're only going to be paying $100 a month, let's say, for their utilities... There's no incentive for them to turn the dial down to 68 in the wintertime. Right. Why not have it at 80? Right. In the summertime, why not Why not keep that uh, AC going at 70 degrees? Oh, you left the window open? Hey, that doesn't matter. It's not going to change my bill anyway. So you're going to end up with a lot of wasted energy because people have no incentive to conserve. No, you're, 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 you're exactly right. And, and the costs of that is then passed on to everybody else. How come you, this is one of my texts, are so against, how come you Republicans are so against any low-income people getting help? This will be good for low-income people. Yeah, and it's going to be bad for everybody else. It's going to be bad for middle-income people. It's going to be bad for upper-middle-class people. And, and nobody's against low-income people getting help. My God, there are all these different energy programs that are out there and things like that to help low-income people. But that's not what this is about. This is now about saying we are going to arbitrarily establish these limits because we've decided that you shouldn't have to pay more than 6% of your income for this. So it doesn't matter. You can use the same amount of services. And you are exactly right, Larry. There is no incentive at all for people to conserve. Hey, this is it. I know that I can't be charged more than three grand or whatever that amount would be. I'm going to use as much as electricity. Let the lights burn. Crank it up to 80. Turn on that air conditioner and let the other suckers pay for this. Um, You know, Jeff, not only is a lot of wasted energy, but, I mean, my guess is that there's no incentive to then economize. Well, well right, there's just no incentive, you know, to do this. Um, Jeff, Joe Biden will start handing out more checks again to pay heating bills. Well, remember, that's the other thing. You know, you had this moratorium that was, you know, going on um, that prevented the utility companies from being able to collect for the longest time. Uh, Jeff, as General Anthony McAuliffe said in World War II, nuts. Well, I, I, I'm just telling you, this idea, now you would normally think that it would be nuts, but again, I'm being told that 
there might be some people on the Public Service Commission who say, well, this, this, would, be, this would be a good thing. You know, here, we're just going to completely and totally revamp the way that we, we make people pay for utilities. And again, I'm not against providing, you know, a, a utility assistance for low-income people. We do that. There's all these programs that do it. But this is about, like, this hard cap, which you know will jack up everybody else's in, uh, premiums or costs for, like, electricity and for natural gas. Jeff, also, what would become of energy assistance programs? If somebody's unable to afford using utilities now, they can go through energy assistance without affecting 100% of the population. Well, yeah, exactly. That's it. Somebody says liberals love this concept. Well, sure, because it's this idea that we're going to take money and what we need to do is we need to reposition stuff from society. So people who are in the middle class, okay, well, you know, you're not paying enough. You need to pay more for the people that are, you know, struggling a little bit more economically. I mean, no, the, the bottom line is you should pay for what you use. You should pay for what you used. Um, Jeff, I missed the first part of this conversation. Who in God's name is proposing this crazy scheme? Well, I mean, again, the, the, the story that's out there is there is a group out of Milwaukee called the Walnut Way Conservation Corps, which has intervened in this rate increase thing that We Energies has filed. And they're, they're saying, look, what, this is what we need to do. Just real simple. We need to cap the amount that people should pay for utilities at, at 6%. And again, th- this has this superficial appeal. Well, you hate poor people if you, if you don't do this. No. I mean, that's why you have energy assistance proposals. Jeff, this is basically another 6% tax on everyone. Um, you know, absolutely. Jeff, it's a great idea. I think, and this is sarcastic, I think this should also be extended to groceries, cable, gasoline, price of cars, etc. I am so glad this texter made that point because that would be my argument. We don't tell, we don't tell Costco or Walmart or Pick and Save or Sendex or the cable company or the phone company, we don't say to ATT Verizon, we don't say, no, you know, you have to cap the amount that you charge based on somebody's income. I mean, we, we don't go to Spectrum, for example, and we don't say, okay, here, here's the deal. Your standard service, if you want, you know, this and this and this and this and Internet, it, it's, you know, the charge is $210 a month. We, we don't say to them, but if you're dealing with somebody who has a household income of, less than whatever that dollar amount would be, you can't charge them $210. You can only charge them a percentage of their household income, and that means we cap them out at $120, again, in my example. So we don't say that to anybody else. We don't say that to you know Walmart that, hey, um, if somebody's going in and they're, they're shopping for clothes at Walmart, well, okay, you can't charge them more than, you know, once they've once they've paid 6% of their income, you, they, they can have whatever they want. We, we don't say that in anything else. Why in God's green earth would we say that when it comes to, again, these utility costs? Um, you know, there, there's no question about it. I mean, and somebody says, well, the, the uh, cable is, and phone are completely different. No, they're not completely different. What, what about the Walmart example? What about the Target example? I mean, this is this is it. Jeff, we're already going to pay for people's student loans. Now energy bills, what's next? Well, that that's it. There is no next. 
that there, there is no limit because you have some of the big government types who believe that we need to redistribute income and we need to do it any way we possibly can. But I do think it's interesting with the conservationists out there, everybody's encouraging people, oh, turn down the thermostat to 65. If you're capped, if it's unlimited, it's sort of like going to the, it's going to the open bar at the wedding reception. Okay, if you're, if you're paying for the drinks at the cash bar, right? Well, you're, you're going to think about, yeah, do I really want to get that after-dinner drink, or do I want to get that extra drink, or maybe I should finish one before I go back and get another two. All right, you, you don't have to do that. This is like the open bar equivalent, except, you know, you're doing it on the energy costs, and the justification is going to be, well, don't you understand? You know, we don't want people— you know, freezing in the winter. Well, no, nobody wants people freezing in the winter. That's why you have a moratorium and you can't turn off people's gas and electric from, what, November 1st and, until April. That's why we have these different things that are out there to prevent that sort of stuff that happens. But this goes beyond that. This is just, again, it's a wealth redistribution thing that says that, okay, we have to now go this one step farther and we have to expect more and more people to pay the bills of these people who, for whatever reasons, um, you know, make less money. Jeff, why stop there? I'd like to own a yacht and a Lamborghini. Well, I mean, well, there's there, there there's that. I mean, for car dealers, yeah. I mean, you, cars, you need a car to get around in. Maybe it should be, hey, if you only make a certain amount of money, you could only be required to pay a certain amount of money. And once once you hit that, well, you could get sort of any car that you want. I mean, this is this is the idea, and I bring this up simply because it's scary. Again, I'm being told that this, this has this appeal to some of the people that are out there who are going to ultimately be making this decision. I think it would be unfair to the vast majority of people, and more importantly, I think it would be counterproductive if we're trying to encourage people to be responsible when it comes to use of energy. It is starting to look like there really is going to be a red wave when it comes to the elections in a little less than than three weeks now. Matter of fact, I think early voting, what starts uh, next Tuesday, I believe, and then, of course, the election is um, on November 8th, uh, which is the last, that's as late as an election can be. uh, Elections have to be on the first Tuesday between November 2nd and November 8th, so this one's going to fall on November 8th, which is as late as it is. If you're starting to look at the polls, it looks like, well, this, you know, you you hear all these, like, uh, abortion ads, whatever impact that had as, as as we're getting closer to the election, more and more people are starting to come home to Republican voters. And you're starting to see that in, in nationwide polls if you, in fact, b- believe polls. And I guess that's, I mean, some people choose not to do it. But the beyond abortion, there's really not a lot that Democrats have to, to run on. And that abortion, I think, issue has is probably taken people as far as it can possibly take. But one of the big concerns, and if you look at the number one issue on most people's minds, not everybody, but on most people's minds, it is the economy and it is issues with regard to inflation. And when it comes to inflation, we all feel the effect of, of higher costs. But the, the, one, the one thing that dramatizes that, I think most, is, is gasoline prices. 
right? When, when you're, because you see that, is you're driving to work, everybody needs gasoline, as you're driving to pick up your kids, whatever, and, and you just see it. They have those signs out in front of every gas station, and you can track, oh my gosh, you know, I remember gas was, you know, $2.50 a gallon not that long ago, and now it's three fifty, or now it's 4 or now it's four fifty or 5 or if you live in Southern California, it's close to 7 bucks a gallon. So we, we've seen that. And we've seen the effect of it, and the politicians have seen it too. That's why, you know, Joe Biden was touting the fact that after gas went up to four fifty or five bucks a gallon, it, you know, it, it came down to four dollars a gallon, and he was celebrating. Well, now it's starting to to go back up again, and it looks like that's going to probably continue if OPEC goes ahead and cuts back on its oil production. So you've got you've got the pain at the pump, which people are feeling. And you've got an election that's coming up in a couple weeks, and you've got driving past those gas stations and seeing these outrageously high prices for gas. And, you know, for example, the Biden administration knows that, that that's not good for the Biden administration. It knows that it's not, as a general rule, good for a lot of the Democrats that are running. So you have today the announcement that Biden is going to go ahead and sell another 15 million barrels of oil from the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And this is the the rest of the 180 million barrels that he had authorized for sale back in March. On top of that, he's saying that he might go ahead and authorize more sales of what's left of about the 400 million barrels that are in reserve. So he's saying, okay, well, I'm going to I'm going to release another 15 million, and I, we've got 400 million barrels left, and I, I might release more of that. That that 400 million barrels is the lowest amount that's been in the strategic reserve essentially since we created the the strategic reserve. But what Biden's doing is he's doing it in an effort to again try to artificially lower the gas prices. Let's put more oil out there because it's a supply and demand effect. And so maybe short term, this is going to reduce gas prices. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I guess my response to this is, what a crock. I I mean, seriously, look, I'm all in favor of low gas prices. But the reason, there's a number of reasons why we have high gas prices— But part of it, not the exclusive reason, but part of it is the fact that Joe Biden has pretty much declared war on the fossil fuel industry. You know, he's pretty much said, "Okay, I want to put you industry. I want this industry. I want you out of business in the next 10 years. And then he's turned around and complaining that, well, we just don't have enough supply. Well, all right. If you're a refiner of gasoline and you're looking at I don't know, investing however many hundreds of millions of dollars it costs to expand your refinery or build a new refinery. Why in the world would you do that when you have an administration which has essentially said, well, we want you to do this. We want you to put more oil on the market, but at the same time, we want you gone in the next five or ten years. This idea of trying to release more oil, okay, I guess I don't have a position on that one way or the other, except to say This, it seems to me, is nothing but another one of these cheap political tricks to try, and I say try, to get some short-term reduction of gasoline prices that gets them through the midterm election and then 
boom, wait till you see the spike that's going to come again, because candidly, you know, another 15 million barrels really isn't going to make that much of a dent in any sort of long-term thing. All right, our number, 855-616-1620. That's the WTMJ talk and text line. All right, let's let's tee this up. Is the answer a short-term infusion of some more oil from our strategic reserve, or do we really need to take a, a larger look at how we're dealing with, with energy? And maybe this war that we have declared on fossil fuels, maybe we should call a truce and, I don't know, encourage oil production and encourage the building of refineries and try to get more domestic production so we can move closer to energy independence. 855-616-1620. We discuss. <laughs> 855-616-1620. Steve from Hales Corners makes an outstanding point. Jeff, I thought the idea of the strategic reserves was to cover us in the case of a real emergency, not a political emergency, like losing the midterms. Yes, that, that, that's exactly what the strategic—see, the strategic reserve was set up after the Arab oil embargoes back in, in the 70s to prevent, I don't know, you know, actions by foreign governments from disrupting it. What Joe Biden has been doing, this is, again, it's it's just like the student loan stuff and so many other stuff. It's an effort to try to buy votes or make a problem go away. Now, Biden released 180 million barrels from the Strategic Reserve. Um, again, he, he ordered that release. This is the final 15 million barrels, and it's coming right at the, at the right before the election because he is concerned that you're going to see another spike in gas prices, and he doesn't want that to happen. All right, now just to give you a little bit of history on this. Before Biden, the last major release of the oil reserve came in 2011, 11 years ago, when President Barack Obama released 30 million barrels of oil to counter disruptions in supply due to civil unrest in Libya. Right, that's 30 million. Biden's released 180 million. President George W. Bush released 11 million barrels of oil from the reserve in 2005 to counter disruptions from Hurricane Katrina. Okay, so again, you you have the emergency that's out there. Um, President George H.W. Bush released 17 million barrels during the Persian Gulf War. Biden has released 180 million gallons and says that he will do more. And, And what is the emergency? Well, he's trying to artificially cover up for the failure of his energy policies and trying to artificially increase supply so you can bring costs down. 855-616-1620, temporarily, because, I mean, you you put this 15 million, you know, barrels on on, on the market and and maybe, you know, short term, you get a few cents or a dime or 15 or 20 cents decrease, but that's going to go away as soon as those 15 million barrels are gone, which Biden is hoping is going to be, well, at least not till a couple weeks after the midterm election. 855-616-1620. Let's start. With Tom in Sun Prairie. Tom, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon, Jeff. Um, just a couple comments. I like. I couldn't agree with you more uh, on what you're saying about this uh, latest move by Biden. It infuriates me, and I, I cannot understand how people, out of voters, how many voters would not, you know, just see through this whole thing. What he's trying to do. But Jeff, that being said, would this be a time for Ron Johnson right now? I know he doesn't have much time left on air. He's probably got a lot of his airtime bought up already. But to put some sort of a message out there on exactly what Biden is doing. And, mm-hmm. and you know, a lot of people are going to see this and say, oh, this is great. Yeah. I don't care. You know, some people aren't smart sometimes. This is going to help me out, yada, yada, yada. Uh, 
But, you know, if they understand a little bit what, what this whole thing is about, if Johnson could kind of say, this is the latest coup that they're trying to put through, that maybe this might wake a few people up and say, oh, gee, I've thought about that. Yeah, this is kind of stupid. Where have they been all summer? Where have they been, you know, for the last year? When we're paying uh, out of the nose for gas prices like we are. So just a thought I had. No, I know. And I, Tom, and I appreciate the perspective. I mean, and, and it's like so many other things. Now, I don't know how you turn this into a 30-second ad or a, you know, a, or a 60-second ad or, or whatever, but it, it's this is just the follow-up. Here, let's try to do stuff, which is going to be bad for the economy. Here, let, let's forgive all the student loan debt. All right, let's forgive all the student loan debt. It's going to fuel inflation, but it's going to make some people feel good. Here, let's release this, this oil from the Strategic Reserve, hoping that we can do it in enough time to lower gas prices by a dime. And what we'll end up doing is we're going to hurt the Strategic Reserve. But, you know, people, maybe they'll feel a little bit better about themselves when they're driving to, you know, the, the polls. Jeff, let me get this straight. We pre- we recently previously took out oil from the strategic reserve without re- strategic reserve without replenishing it. That's correct. We're essentially at war with Russia. We're trying to pick a fight with Saudi Arabia and other major producers. Releasing more oil from the street strategic reserve doesn't sound very strategic. Doesn't even sound like a good political move. Well, it's 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 a terrible long term move. But that's not what the Biden administration is thinking. They are not thinking past three weeks from now. And and that's just like with the student loan stuff and all. This is, let's see if we can simply, again, make people forget, we know we're vulnerable in the whole issue of inflation. We know we're vulnerable when gas is $4 a gallon or four fifty a gallon or whatever. And we don't want people taking that on us. Let's see if we can get some sort of short-term help. And if it's bad for this country moving forward, well, we'll we'll deal with this. Um, Jeff, isn't this buying votes, which is illegal? Well, it's not bribery in in the classic, like here I'm going to give you ten dollars to go vote for somebody. But but this is this is what politicians do. We have these short term sort of things. That's what Evers is doing in the governor's race. It's like I'm going to give you this amount of money, and I'm going to give the city of Milwaukee this amount of money, and I'm going to throw all this money around stuff that he hasn't done in four years, but he wants to do it at the end of his term because. He's hoping, you know, people will buy into that. Jeff, I'm not a Republican by any means, but Biden has got to go. The overspending is hurting the common man. We are hurting out here. Um, That's it. Jeff, finish and open the pipeline. Well, see, that's this is a point that I have been trying to make for the longest time. Rather than using gimmicks, and this this is a gimmick. Rather than using gimmicks to try to, in this case, get some short-term relief till you get past the next couple weeks, and then if the bottom falls out and all you know what breaks loose, well, we don't care because we got another two years to the election. What you need is a long-term energy strategy. And the problem with the Biden administration is, for whatever reasons— in part because they're in bed with the climate lobby and there's maybe some other factors as well, they've pretty much declared war on the fossil fuel industry. And, you know, they've told the refiners, like I said earlier, we want to put you out of business. So, you know, all right, why would you invest money in building new refineries? And that's part of the problem we have in this country. We haven't built a new refinery in Lord knows how long. Why would you build a new refinery if you've got the government saying, hey, we, we want you gone? 
Why would you invest money in some of the riskier sort of drilling things if the government's telling you, you know, we want you out? You know, you've seen this with the war on the pipelines that are out there because, again, we want to appease the environmentalists, and so we're going to declare war on the fossil fuel industry, and then you're surprised that production is down. Now, a couple of people are saying, well, don't you understand that world companies have record profits? Yeah, I understand that. Part of those record profits is thanks to Joe Biden, because again, the supply, it, it's a supply and demand sort of thing. So when you create disincentives to build the refinery, or you make it harder to transport oil through pipelines because you won't approve pipeline construction, or you make it more difficult for people to drill in easier fashions, yes, that's going to limit the supply and that's going to jack up the cost, that's going to jack up the prices. And yes, you're going to end up making more money. That's one of the ironies of what Biden is doing here. 855-616-1620. Let's talk to um, Randy in South Milwaukee. Randy, you're in WTMJ. Yeah. Hey, I was just kind of wondering, uh, once they get rid of all their oil, other reserves or whatever, are they building them back up again as time goes on or not? You know, like uh, Biden used some, uh, like the, you were saying. Well, the answer to your question, Randy, is not so far. <laughs> That's it. Now, the, the not, not so far. Right. The str- and again, the, the strategic oil reserve is there, again, to protect us in times of emergencies. That, that, that's the idea. And I mean, I gave you an example a little bit earlier ago about, about some of the things that, that former presidents have declared as emergencies, you know, where, where you've had, okay, Hurricane Katrina that comes in and blows out a bunch of the, the oil drilling and a bunch of the refineries, you know, during the Obama administration, when they had this crisis in Haiti, they, they did it. During the Persian War, they did it. But nobody, or Gulf War, that is, but nobody has drawn down 180 million barrels. Obama, both President Bush's, you know, 15 million barrels, etc. Biden, in an effort to try to stabilize gas prices, instead of doing what he should have done, which is encourage, again, development and let the free market operate, um, what happened is, Biden ended up drawing down 180 million barrels. Now, my understanding is it's been at the lowest levels since we started it. And to answer your question directly, no, I don't think at least at this point in time, there is a plan as to how that is going to be replenished. On top of that, we're now down to 400 million barrels. And Biden is saying, well, I'm willing to continue doing this. I'm willing to deplete it even further in order to, again, stabilize the prices The government shouldn't be doing this. The government should get out of the way, encourage production from the oil companies, stop declaring war on fossil fuels, drill, baby, drill, and, you know, then we see where we end up going. But unless and until we do that, this is the short-term solution. But I guess, you know, you can argue uh, about the drilling and the climate stuff. That's that's one conversation. But at the same time, I, I think you look at this, what bothers me, is when you have this short-term stuff, which is done exclusively, not for economic benefits, it's done essentially to, I mean, try to reduce the prices of gasoline artificially for a couple weeks so you can get through the election. And that's, that's, that's wrong, and that's dangerous. Mark in Mount Pleasant. Mark, you're on WTMJ. How are you doing, Jeff? Hi, Mark. 
I agree with everything you've said. I mean, Joe Biden's done everything he can to crush the U.S. economy. And number one thing that drives the economy is the cost of fuel. And, uh, you know, the first week as president, he signed all those papers, canceling the pipelines, limiting all the drilling in the United States. Uh, I agree. I just want to say I agree with you. I mean, he's causing more harm than good. Right. Uh, And only thanks for call. And only from the perspective of politics that that, that's that's it. Let's reduce it. I mean, look, Joe Biden likes high gas prices. Oh, how can you say that? No, he he does. Joe Biden is anti-car. Joe Biden is anti-fossil fuels. Joe Biden wants to get to a point where it becomes so expensive for people to drive um, gasoline powered cars that you get forced into doing the electric cars or things like that. Forget the fact that, the, that we don't have a power grid. We're not ready for that. I mean, th- this is it. People don't like the cars, but they don't want to take the political heat for seeing the high gas prices because most of us aren't ready to make that electric switch. So, uh, I, look, I, I don't know if this is going to work or not, but I know it is, it's not only bad, it's but it's bad policy. Maybe it's good politics. And and look, if, if gasoline prices come down 20 cents over the course of the, the next two weeks, will I be happy? Absolutely. But I know they're going to go up 50 cents then immediately after the election, and I'm going to be unhappy. I just think this idea of trying to, let's see what we can do to stall. Let's see what we can do to buy time. Let's try to convince people that the world isn't like what the real world is. I think that's that's bad policy, and it's going to haunt us for quite a while. When we come back, oh, lots of stuff, including a war on libraries, why haven't charges been issued, and Charlie Brown. All that's coming up in the 2 o'clock hour of the program. Stick around. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. One final thought on what we were talking about just a couple minutes ago, the strategic oil reserve. And, and it's really, it's interesting to me how things get played in the media. Um, there, there's no question that Joe Biden is feeling the pain of, of gasoline prices, right? That, that's it. Um, to the point, the National Review makes this point. One of the things that Biden has been very, very afraid of is that um, OPEC, including, you know, Saudi Arabia, OPEC was going to cut production. Matter of fact, they've announced that that's exactly what they're going to do. So if you will remember, um, the middle of the month, um, Biden went to the Saudis to ask them to delay OPEC plus, that's the, the OPEC members, to delay their oil supply cuts for a month into mid-November. And the argument he made was he said, look, here's here's what we should do. You know, why, why don't you wait and see how all this settles out and and just just hold off on any production cuts until mid-November? OK, well, what what is the purpose of mid-November? Well, the purpose of mid-November is it, it gets it gets him past the, the midterms. And it's kind of interesting. The National Security Council spokesman, uh, John Kirby, said, well, yeah, that's kind of what the timeline was. You know, we presented Saudi Arabia with analysis to show that they could easily wait until the next OPEC meeting to see how things developed. You know, just if, if you're going to do it, just just hold off, you know, for a few weeks. And the, obviously the thing is he was trying to do is get them past the, the midterm election because he doesn't want the prices to go up. Now, I just it's a different sort of thing. But remember all the trouble that Donald Trump got into a few years ago when he 
supposedly had that phone call with the president of Ukraine and before Russia invaded and stuff. And he was, you know, urging, urging Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden's son. Remember all the outrage about that? And the argument was, well, you know, he's trying to use his power as the president to pressure an ally to conduct this investigation, which is going to benefit him politically. Remember that? And seem to remember talk of impeachment and things of, of the like over that issue. Well, I mean, I understand it's a different sort of circumstance, but how is that really that much different from Joe Biden going to Saudi Arabia and saying, "Okay, here here's the deal. I would really appreciate it if you would use your influence with OPEC plus to hold off on any cutbacks in supply until, let's say, mid-November. And, of course, what's magic about mid-November? Well, what's magic about mid-November is it would be after the midterms. Okay, let us switch gears. And I'm curious as to your reaction to the story, because there, there was a development yesterday that has a lot of people now wondering what's going on with the district attorney's office. Um, Janet uh, Bewley, and I believe that's how you pronounce her, her name, she is the retiring Senate minority leader. She's 70 years old. You will probably remember the story. It happened, um, was it, um, it was in July, July 22nd, I believe. What happened is she's she represents the far northwest portion of the state. And she's in this this parking lot at, at a beach up in, up in the area, um, in the northwest part of the state, um, like Ashland. So what she does is she's, on the phone, she's actually doing an interview with an intern at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel about the you know upcoming elections. Now this is like last summer. It's Friday afternoon. She's in her car. She's not. She's she's on like the hands free thing, but she's doing an interview with the the Journal Sentinel intern. On top of that, she had apparently had cataract eye surgery the day before. Okay. So what happens is, while she's in the middle of the interview, so she's giving the interview, she's driving, had just had cataract surgery and stuff, and she pulls out um, out from the parking lot um, to turn east onto U.S. Highway 13. All right, so she does not have the right of way. There's a car that, that's coming, um, and she collides with the car. So she bangs into this car because she pulls out. She hits the car. The vehicle that she hits was driven by a 27-year-old woman um, who's also got her 5-year-old daughter in the car at the time. Because of the impact, you know, she bangs into the the car that's driven by the 27-year-old woman. What happens is the vehicle spins across the highway and then is struck by a vehicle coming the other way. So the woman and the daughter, they, they, they die as a result of of this crash and as a result of, again, the the Senate minority leader pulling out and hitting him. The matter was investigated. Um, There's been a police report that was generated months ago. The case has been sitting in the DA's office with no movement at all. You know, no movement at all. Now, what happened yesterday is the father of the five-year-old girl who died in the car crash has now filed a lawsuit in Ashland County Court alleging that, okay, that, you know, they're entitled to compensation because uh, Bewley was was negligent um, in that regard. 
So the question, though, is, so far the district attorney's office has done nothing with this particular case. So you've got the civil lawsuit that's there. The DA's office says, well, you know, we're, we're still... You know, we're, we're still looking at it, trying to decide what to do, and we're in the process of reviewing the reports to determine whether charges should be filed. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What should happen here? This is always one of these sort of interesting stories because, as, as I have always said, not, not every automobile collision, not every example of, of negligence, you know, is a criminal act. I mean, sometimes just just stuff happens, and that's why you have the civil courts, and that's why you have the lawsuits. In this particular case, the facts don't seem to be too much at issue. The lady had had cataract surgery the day before. She's driving. She's talking on the phone, but I think it's hands-free operation. And for whatever reason, she pulls out into traffic, hits this car that's coming the other way, driven by— bangs into this car with the the mother and the daughter, and as a result of the impact, causes the car to go over into the other lane of traffic where it's it's hit by an oncoming car. She clearly did not yield the right of way. I mean, I think that's that that's pretty much clear. She was talking on the phone, but it wasn't a hands-held thing. She had had cataract surgery. Is this is this a criminal case? Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the WTMJ talk and text line. There, there wasn't alcohol involved here. I don't think that there, there, there wasn't like excessive speed or anything. She just didn't have the right of way when she pulled out and banged into the car driven by this woman. And in some respects, it's really, really bad luck because if that vehicle hadn't been going the other way. I mean, if it had just been, hey, you, you knock into the car, you cause the woman to lose control, and she goes over the other lane of traffic, it, it wouldn't have been a problem, but for the fact that there was a car coming the other way, and as a result, now you have two people that are dead. Is this a crime? Or is this, hey, sue, determine liability, have the insurance companies pay out money, or is it a criminal act? 855-616-1620. We discuss in just a moment. Eight five five six one six one six twenty, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Live. Now, one of the questions people are putting is saying, "Is okay if she had cataract surgery the day before? What, you know, what what is the rule?" Now, I've never had cataract surgery. I, I think the general advice that's given is you wait at least twenty four hours before you drive. Sometimes more than that. And um, in many cases, if it's 24 hours, you're supposed to go back and visit your, your eye surgeon to just get get looked at. Now, so I don't know if she did that or not, um, but clearly, I mean, she's in a situation where she just had cataract surgery. Don't know if she had seen her doctor or not. Um, she's on the phone conducting an interview and clearly isn't paying attention when she pulls into traffic. Does that make it a crime, though? Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the um, WTMJ talk and text line. Okay, let's start with Chris in Cedarburg. Chris, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, good afternoon. Hi, Chris. Um, I feel that, you know, it, whatever repercussions a normal person would, you know, have or get, um, I, I thought it was 48 hours or 72 hours, and right. then your doctor has to clear you for normal driving activity, that type of thing. Um, So if she was multitasking or doing too much, 
and maybe, you know, there was, you know, she wasn't able to see peripherally out right. of her eyes, you know, uh, you know, I, she's going to have to, to, whatever the repercussions are, she's going to have to take it. So for, mean, in your mind, that, it, so in, in your mind, that would be one of the keys would be what she was told by her doctor. And I, and, and I don't, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I, all the reports are is that she had cataract surgery the day before. So, I mean, I don't know if it had been 24 hours or 26 hours or whether she'd gone back to the doctor or what exactly the instructions were, but that would be a key thing that you look at, you know, what, what did her doctor tell her about driving in that case? Absolutely. My, my dad had that done and I, I honestly thought it was like three days that they really didn't want him yeah. doing any, you know, just, just to be safe. And sure. that's the whole point is you want to be safe. And, you yeah. know, by her doing this, it just kind of, it's, it, really affected other people and that's that's what's right. you know kind of debilitating and sucky got it thanks for the call chris kind of debilitating and sucky yeah thanks for the call let's talk to uh jane in brookfield jane you're on wtmj hi hi jane i'm actually on my car phone hi <laughs> waiting for i'm actually on my car phone turning left right now and waiting for somebody to turn in front of me um, <laughs> so yeah, I know, right? I would agree with that caller, too. Is it really depends what um, the doctor office had told her. And, yeah, she should not be, ne- it shouldn't be negligence. It should be criminal charges, vehicular manslaughter. If her doctor had said that you are not supposed to be mm-hmm. doing any type of uh, driving or, you know, other type of recreational activities. Because what if she was driving a boat or something and slammed into another boat or a jet ski or something along those lines and killed somebody? Okay, so um, what if he what if, so if the, what if the doctor had line. said what if the doctor had said okay well you know you you, you can you know be careful with this but you know typically unless you're having problems twenty four hours is enough if the doctor had said that and she had waited the twenty four hours at that case at that time do you think that takes criminal charges off the table? I would say it would take criminal charges, then it's an accident, and then you have to do the civil civil area where it goes through the um, insurance yeah. companies. Yeah, and that, and that's yeah, you and, know, because of that. Yeah, no, thanks for and that's and of course they they run parallel tracks. I mean, that's why that the father of the five year old who was killed. I mean, he's filed a lawsuit, a lawsuit, a wrongful death lawsuit, and regardless of the outcome of criminal charges, that's certainly his his right to do. I mean, I don't think. To me, and matter of fact, I appreciate some of the calls here because that was kind of the way I looked at it, too. First of all, to me, there's no question this is a negligence case. I mean, she didn't have the right of way. She's on the phone, um, which you can argue even if you're hands-free, you know, there's a degree of distraction there. And, And she pulled in. She did not have the right of way. She smacked into the other car. And so I think it's pretty clear that she is negligent in in this case. That doesn't mean that she's criminally negligent. Criminal negligence is like negligence to such a degree that it it ends up crossing the line. I actually agree with our our first two callers. To me, one of the key elements, and I, I don't understand... Frankly, I don't understand why it's taking the district attorney's office so long uh, unless they are intentionally trying to delay this until like after the elections. And by the way, she's retiring. She's not running for reelection. But it, if, if I were the prosecutor looking at this 
a, a key element to me in determining whether it's criminal negligence would be would be that cataract surgery and would be what were her instructions. If, if a doctor says, and again, I, I've, I've never had cataract surgery, so I don't know what you're told. If the doctor says, look, I don't, I don't think you should be driving. Um, you know, typically people can do that after 24 hours, but I, I don't think you should be driving until you come back and get checked out. If, if, and, and if she didn't and she's behind the wheel of the car, to me, that's an added factor that I would certainly consider that might take this beyond just the range of, of um, just ordinary sort of, of negligence. It, it's a horrible sort of case. I, I think the district attorney is appropriately getting some criticism for what I believe is dragging his feet. This isn't a – it's not really a, a whodunit type of thing. You, you know what happened. You've got the police reports that's out there. The, the question is, you know, what did the eye doctor, what did the surgeon tell her? And then maybe you talk to, you know, somebody at, at UW Medical and you say, okay, what's the standard advice that you give to people in, you know, cataract cases? You know, do you tell them not to drive? And I'm, I'm looking at the Internet, and it's kind of all over the map. The general advice seems to be people are told at least 20, avoid driving for at least 24 hours, and in many cases it's, it's not just 24 hours, but it's until you've you know come back and had the eye doctor look at you to make sure that you know everything is okay. I mean, I don't know if the vision was related to what happened or not, but if I were looking at criminal charges, that would be a key factor. But I, I will say this, and I, I've always believed, especially when you have the, these high-profile political cases or political figures, delaying these things doesn't help because it creates a perception that there is a double standard. And, you know, here it's the Ashland District Attorney. The facts really aren't at issue. I think the sooner they make that decision, and then you come out and you defend the case. Hey, you know, I, I you know, she she had been told this was more than 24 hours. She'd been cleared by her doctor. I don't think the cataract thing was this. She just, you know, she's, she's negligent. I don't believe there's a basis for criminal charges. You make that decision. If that's the decision you make or contrary to that, you say, no, I, I think this is a, a crime. But the sooner you make the decision, the better, because the longer you let this hang fire, the more you, I think, let people think that, oh, this is a a political sort of decision that's going on. Uh, This shouldn't be rocket science one way or the other. And, And now it's back in the news because you have the lawsuit that's been filed. I will say this. In the course of a show, we get hundreds and hundreds of texts, and I always enjoy that. And some of them... Some of them just honestly make me laugh. Here, here's, here's one. Jeff, sounds like an accident to me. All right, that's fine. Of course you're discussing it because she's a Democrat. If this was Robin Voss, you wouldn't even bring it up. To which my response was, you make me smile. If this was Robin Voss, if Robin Voss had had cataract surgery in July, the next day while he's talking, giving an interview with the Journal Sentinel and talking on his car phone, hands-free admittedly, pulled out into traffic, hit a car that ended up causing the death of a 27-year-old woman and a 5-year-old daughter, okay, and her 5-year-old daughter. If that had been Robin Voss that did this, can we be honest? This would have been a headline story every day from the day it happened in July till the present. Reporters would be camped outside the DA's office demanding a decision months ago. Anywhere Robin Voss went, anywhere the DA went, he'd, he'd have, they'd have microphones stuck in their face. So this idea that, well, that we wouldn't talk about if it was Robin Voss. No, if this had been Robin Voss, everybody would have been talking about it. It is kind of the double standard that's out there that because— 
In this case, it's a Democrat uh, minority leader in the U.S. Senate. It's gotten in the state Senate. It's gotten so little attention. And the only reason it's back in the news is the father of the girl who lost her life has now filed a lawsuit. Okay, if this was Robin Voss, you wouldn't be talking about it. We wouldn't have to talk about it because everybody else would be talking about it if it was Robin Voss. See, th- that is one of the recognizable themes, my producer Charlie. You know, that, that's exactly, you hear that and, and you immediately think of the, the Charlie Brown Christmas special. Well, here's the story in USA Today. You won't see It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, on TV this year. Uh, now, remember, it's, I mean, the Great Pumpkin, which is the, you know, the, the, it's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. That was, I think, the second one. I think the, the Christmas one came first, the Charlie Brown Christmas. The, right, the, the Halloween special premiered on CBS in 1966. Yeah, I was right. The 1965 was when you had a Charlie Brown Christmas. Okay, so it was on CBS for 1966 until about 2000. In 2001, the Halloween special moved to ABC. All right, so what happened then is that in 2020, ABC cut this this deal, the, the parent company, where the rights to show the Charlie Brown stuff was transferred over to Apple TV as part of this new corporate deal. All right, so people got just absolutely outraged that, it, that the Charlie Brown things weren't going to be on, like, free TV um, in 2020. So what happened is they made arrangements that uh, on PBS 2021, the, the Peanuts specials were, were showed. And they had a special, and so you could see the Charlie Brown Christmas. You could see the Charlie Brown. It's a great pumpkin, Charlie Brown. Um, but what happened is that that has now gone away. So if you want to— Watch the Charlie Brown specials, the Halloween one or the Christmas one. You, you have to have Apple TV. Streaming is going to be the only way to watch it. Now, Apple TV said that um, it's going to be streaming them, and they did say that, hey, we're going to make arrangements. Normally, you you know, Apple TV is a subscription service, right? They did say that they would make arrangements for people who have, have downloaded the Apple TV app that there would be a window of opportunity where they would be able to stream for free the Peanuts specials. It's a great pumpkin, Charlie Brown, um, October 28th through the 31st, a Charlie Brown Thanksgiving, November 23rd through the 27th, Charlie Brown Christmas, December 22nd to 25th. That That's for free. Now, obviously, if you are a, a customer of Apple TV and you stream this, then you don't have to wait. Then you, you can stream this at any time. So they're, they're obviously using these Charlie Brown shows as a way to you know get people in. The idea is, okay, we're going to show it for free, but people are going to have to download the app. And so then I'm sure their hope is when you go on to the Apple TV app to watch the, once you've gone to the trouble of downloading it, you've got it there, you go on to the Apple TV app to watch It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, that you'll then be inspired to say, hey, I want to stick around. I like some of the stuff that I see on Apple. I can watch Ted Lasso or whatever, and I'll, I'll pay whatever Apple TV charges to do that. So that's their hope. What I think is so interesting about this story is that the, these various peanut shows, going back to 1965, shows that I'm willing to bet all of us have seen on multiple occasions. It's probably one of those things where we could do all the lines from the movies if we chose. That the fact that 
all right, they, they might not be available on free TV this year, that, that's creating this stir. It shows that, that people are really, really invested in this. And I thought we'd have some fun for this segment. Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the WTMJ talk and text line. All right, what is it about the Charlie Brown specials that, that resonate like this? The, the fact that, you know, people are all worked up over the fact that now they're not going to be shown on free TV and now you have to have the streaming service and all this type of stuff. For, for most programs, I don't think people would care. For most specials, I don't think people would care. But there's something about the, the, the Peanuts specials that has really touched a nerve with people. So 855-616-1620, that's a WTMJ talk and text line. Right, what is it about the Peanuts specials that really, I don't know, is so appealing to you and has probably made them a part of your life that you watched them as a kid and maybe you watched them with your kids and maybe right now you're looking forward to watching them with your grandkids. Why do they stand the test of time? We're back to discuss in just a minute. This which is the WTMJ talk and text line. We were doing a lot of heavy lifting for for two and a half hours on the show. I'm I'm so intrigued by this story about the Charlie Brown specials. If you're just tuning in, um, Charlie Brown, if you want to watch like the Halloween show or the Thanksgiving special or the Christmas special, it's not on regular TV anymore. It's owned, the rights are owned by Apple Plus. And so what you have to do is you have to have the Apple Plus streaming service. They are making it available for free a couple days around Halloween, a couple days around Thanksgiving, a couple days around Christmas. But you still have to download the app. So obviously they're hoping that people might download the app. And then once they go to watch the Charlie Brown Halloween special, for example, they'll be inspired to want to subscribe to Apple. But the bottom line is it's it's not going to be on free TV. And a lot of people are all worked up about this. I just think it's interesting to analyze what is it about these Charlie Brown specials that go back to 1965 that we all know by heart that we still feel so connected with. Let's start with uh, Mike in Illinois. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Mike. How are you, Jeff? Good. What do you think? Why is it the Charlie Brown? How does it, why does this resonate? I think it resonates because everyone has been a kid, and those characters are timeless. On the break, I was thinking about why, like, why Christmas Story is so popular because everyone's been a kid, yeah. and every I feel like everyone can relate to it. It transcends generations. Yeah, um, you know, it certainly came up came out at a time when uh, kind of like the later half of the baby boomers and the beginning of the Gen Xers, and um, that is a part of their childhood, and um, it just transcends generations. I believe. No, it is. No, I think you're onto something, Mike. I also think. I think it's it, it's it's nostalgic. It takes us back to simpler times. I mean, I can, I remember. I am old enough to remember. I mean, I was a kid, young kid, but I mean, I'm old enough. To, I remember when those shows first aired, and it was just it was kind of this this big deal that was there. And I can remember watching it with my parents. And I'm sure that there's a lot of people out there and who say, yeah, I remember watching as a kid. And now, you know, I've watched it with my kids and now we watch it with your grandkids. Let's talk to uh, Jeff in Fox Point. Hi, Jeff. You're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. I think the peanuts are resonating for two reasons. One is that it's highly nostalgic and people really want to watch these car- these uh, specials with their kids. Uh, but two, I think the peanuts cartoons are the Seinfeld of cartoons. 
And by that, I mean that there are many instances of the peanuts that are applicable to real life. And I oh, yeah. do hear people from time to time quoting and referencing the, the peanuts. Like, oh. for example, I hear people talking about Lucy pulling the football. Right. No, I think you're, you know, I mean, or the good grief, Charlie Brown. No, they, they used to call and I, I think you're onto something, too. Also, they have timeless stories. I, I mean, okay, just— all right, let's let, let's think about the Charlie Brown Christmas thing. You know, everybody's caught up in the you know, the materialism of Christmas and you know that that's what it's all about and then you you have, you know, Charlie Brown goes and he finds the little, you know, sort of like the decrepit little tree and then you know they they come and wrap it and it turns out to be this beautiful thing. It's I mean, it's a comment on on materialism. So it, it works on a couple different levels. You know, the um it's the great pumpkin Charlie Brown is the same thing. Linus sitting in the pumpkin patch, you know, waiting for, you know, that for the great pumpkin to come. The Thanksgiving special is the sort of same way. They they they're they've got timeless messages as well that sort of and good compelling music that kind of transcend this. Um, Mike says, Jeff, I think it's nostalgic. I watched the peanut specials on the holidays when I was a kid, and now I watch it with my kids. We own all the DVDs, so the subscriptions um, aren't an issue. Um, yeah, that's it. Uh, Todd says, Jeff, it's simple. It's about family. It's about memories. Um, you know, watching it with the grandparents or watching with your parents, your aunt and uncle when you were by your cousin's house. It's about fem- families and it's about memories. I, I agree with that. Jeff, these, these specials stand the test of time for me. 47, because the world we live in has changed so much from what we grew up with. It reminds me of a much simpler time. Growing up in the 80s, there was not an overwhelming amount of media via streaming and the computer. There were a few specials, and when they were played, there were toy commercials. The entire family would sit with one another and be inspired and keep us warm inside with the cold and the snow falling outside. Um, Yeah, I think that there's, you know, an element— to that as well. It stands the test of time. Jeff, this is the quintessential Charlie Brown. The secret of life is to keep looking up. Um, How can you not have Charlie Brown? I watched all the specials as a kid every year, as did my kids. Mike says, it's a family tradition. The Wizard of Oz, The Sound of Music, A Christmas Carol, etc. These old-time seasonal TV specials were a time for family bonding. I think that there is definitely an element of that. Jeff, it's simple. They're clean, plain, they're simple, plain entertainment with good moral values being shown. The Christmas special even quotes the New Testament of the Bible. Nobody gets killed. The kids don't disobey mom and dad. It is kind of simple. Jeff, I love those specials. It's relatable comic relief that resonates with the general public. Yeah, I think that's it. Um, There's no question. Jeff, the Peanut series with Charlie Brown is a tradition amongst those born in the 70s and 80s, and most of us still like to continue the tradition during the holidays and watch it. I myself admit that as an adult, I would love to watch the cartoon every year during the holidays. Well, you know, I've got Apple TV Plus, and I, I, I am sure that sometime between now and and Halloween, you know, we'll fire up. It's the great pumpkin, Charlie Brown. Jeff, they're timeless, innocent entertainment for children and adults alike. Fortunately, we bought all the Charlie Brown specials on DVD. Our grandchildren can watch them for free at our house anytime um, they like. Jeff Charles Schultz, he was, of course, the creator of Peanuts, is rolling over in his grave over people having to pay for his specials. Well, okay, that's it. Jeff, I, I paid for Apple. Stop giving my content away for free. You know, I think they're tongue-in-cheek with um, 
you know, that. But it's, I, I think it, it is kind of cool. Jeff, I'll tell you why. Charlie Brown is 99% of us. He's in love with the little redheaded girl that ignores him. He's dominated by his alpha sister. He believes the great pumpkin will show up for Linus. He takes pity on a pitiful Christmas tree, no matter who makes fun of him. Charlie Brown is the true believer loser like most of us are. Ironically, I'm sure he would protest Apple having his show rights. We need Charlie Brown to make us feel better about our lives. Um, yeah, Schroeder on the piano. How great that is. Um, Jeff, people are drawn to these cartoons because we need them. They give us a good feeling that we don't get in this mixed up world today. You know, I think I'm going to leave it at that because there is, there there is definitely this appeal that is out there about, you know, the the Charlie Brown show. So if you're looking for them again on regular TV, ain't going to happen this year. Um, but you can download Apple TV and you can stream them for free if if you choose not to uh, subscribe to Apple TV. But the bottom line is you, you put them on, and I, I tell you, you watch the things, and you can't, you just can't help but smile. There, there's no question about it. It was a part of my life growing up, and I think it's part of my life as a grown-up as well. It's a part of pop culture that just isn't going away.